Section 4 of The Romance of the Romanoffs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Romance of the Romanoffs by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 4 The Rise of the Romanoffs. The second son of Ivan the Terrible, who now became the Tsar Fyodor, was a piquant contrast to his father and brother. Not wives and mistresses, but the ornate services of the church, or long private devotions, occupied his hours. He was as meek as his father had been truculent, and the nobles began to raise their heads once more. His uncle, Nikita Romanov, brother of the first Tsarina, naturally held the first place in his confidence, and relieved him of the profane task of governing his dominions. But the pious Fyodor had married, and his wife Irene had a masterful and ambitious brother, Boris Gudnov. The Gudnovs are said to have descended from a Tatar chief, who had embraced Christianity and settled in Moscow. Irene was devoted to her brother, and she used her influence over the feeble-minded Tsar to promote him. Before long the palace was split into two factions, and the familiar struggle for power and wealth set in. Nikita Romanov was a man of ability, but he had a more astute rival— Boris Gudnov secured two measures which greatly increased his support in Moscow and the country. The first measure won for him the gratitude of the clergy. The Russian church was still in effect the Greek church. Its supreme head was the patriarch of Constantinople, who sustained his tattered dignity among the Mohammedans. Boris induced this man to create a patriarch of Moscow, and he thus won the increasing favor of the clergy. His other measure was one of great and terrible significance for the poor Christians. The expansion of Russia had created large new estates, and the great landowners continually attracted peasants away from the smaller estates. But the small landowners who formed the yeomanry or cavalry of the empire, were not a body to be despised, either in the interest of the country or of an aspiring politician. It is said that in 1592 Boris played for their support by issuing an imperial decree which forbade the peasants to go from one estate to another. Some Russian historians deny this. If the document is genuine, they say, it meant only that Boris legally fixed a practice which had gradually arisen on account of the mischief of these peasant migrations. However that may be, there is no doubt that Boris Gudnov legally established serfdom in Russia at a time when it was being abandoned elsewhere. The peasants grumbled and suffered, but they now had upon their backs an autocracy that treated their wishes with entire contempt. As the reign of Fyodor, 1584-1598, to 1598, wore on, and no son appeared, Boris pushed his ambition to greater lengths. The heir to the throne would now be the young Prince Dmitri, the son of Ivan the Terrible's seventh wife. 
early in the reign of theodore the nobles had compelled dmitri's ambitious mother to take her infant son and her relatives to a remote provincial estate and from that exile the mother and her kin nervously studied the failing health of tsar theodore and the condition of his wife the subjection of women in russia does not seem to have extinguished their ambition and there was at the court itself the usual party out of power which espoused the hope of a possible dynasty the court seethed once more with sordid passion in fifteen ninety one the dmitri faction at court was shattered by the announcement that the young prince was dead boris ordered an inquiry and as a result he announced that owing to the carelessness of his mother in supervising him dmitri had committed suicide with becoming zeal the virtual regent forced the mother to enter a nunnery and consigned her relatives to various prisons moscow at large reflecting that the tragedy removed an important obstacle from boris's path to the throne preferred to believe that his servants had murdered the prince that is the general opinion of historians but there are some who maintain that the child was not murdered at all and that the adventurer who will presently enter the story was really dmitri for the present at all events the way was cleared and the death of theodore in fifteen ninety eight left the throne vacant the nobles and people offered their allegiance to the tsarina but irene suddenly discovering a remarkable distrust of her powers and dislike of the world fled to a nunnery boris had with equal modesty retired to the same nunnery but his supporters worked for him and presently the convent was sought by an impressive procession of the clergy headed by the obsequious patriarchs the boyars and the people of moscow offering the crown to boris he declined an invitation which seemed to him to come from too small a section and the general council of the empire was then convoked and it repeated the offer after a further mockery of resistance he accepted and became tsar boris i have said that boris gudunov was as able a man to fill the autocracy as could have been found at that time and he endeavoured to complete the plans of ivan the terrible he kept in check sweden and poland consolidated the gains in asia and maintained close and profitable relations with queen elizabeth he encouraged russian students to go to western countries for the completion of their education but we are concerned with the rise of the romanovs and may summarize other matters three years after the accession of boris a dreadful famine spread over the land it lasted three years and so great was the destitution that in later years horrible stories were whispered of parents devouring their own children streams of the suffering country folk poured into moscow and as its own provisions were soon exhausted the streets of the capital were filled with pale and emaciated ghosts it is said that hundreds of thousands died in moscow alone and throughout the land the superstitious people spoke of the sin of boris gudunov in murdering the heir to the throne
the nobles themselves stirred, and Boris put into operation the usual machinery. The Romanov family seemed to be in a special source of danger, and the chief representative of that family, Fyodor Romanov, was thrust into a monastery and buried under the monkish title of Philaret. His wife was compelled to enter a nunnery and assume the name of Marfa. The scattered feeling of discontent at length gathered round the person of a singular adventurer. In the summer of 1604, the news spread through Russia that Dmitri, the third son of Ivan the Terrible, was not dead, but was approaching Moscow with a Polish army to oust the usurper and put an end to their miseries. Gregory Otropieff, who is generally believed to have been the false Dmitri, had been a roving monk who had turned brigand with a band of Cossacks. From the southern steppes he had gone to Poland, and there, it was announced, he had, believing himself to be at the point of death, revealed to a Jesuit confessor the secret of his birth, and shown the priest a jewelled cross which proved his identity. The Jesuits were still in their melodramatic phase of secret conspiracy for the church, and may well have invented or embroidered the story. They pressed Dmitri upon the Catholic king and nobles of Poland, and in October he crossed the frontier of Russia with an irregular force. Would the Jesuits add to their many triumphs the submission of Russia to the Vatican after so many centuries of resistance? Atropiev's force was defeated, but there was a good deal of treachery and presently a large body of the Cossacks came to join the army of their former companion. At this juncture, in 1605, Boris died, and priests, soldiers, and people declared that they were convinced of the genuineness of the adventurer. The late Tsar's wife and son were murdered with the usual barbarity, the people of Moscow lustily received the monk brigand when he came for his coronation, and even the widow of Ivan the Fourth publicly fell upon his neck and identified him. Her relatives were, of course, promoted to wealth and honor, and even the Romanovs returned from the monastic shades to the sunlight of prosperity. Monk Philaret was made a metropolitan, or archbishop, but the rise to power was not so speedy as the fall from it, and both give us some measure of the ignorance and barbarism of the times. Atropiev was a clever and accomplished man, but he either lacked or disdained to use in so credulous a world the art of tact. He brought a Polish wife whose sweet laughed at the uncouth ways of the Russians. He himself, too openly railed at the backwardness of the country, surrounded himself with foreigners, and acted with scandalous independence. He was plainly, as his adventures would indicate, a skeptic, and he snapped his fingers at the Pope and the Jesuits the moment they had secured the throne for him. But he was no more respectful to the clergy and religious forms of Russia. He disdained monks and icons, asked no blessing on his table, and refused to follow any of the court traditions. 
and within a month of his entrance into the Kreml, the adventurer lay dead upon the stones of its courtyard. People, amazed at their own credulity, now exclaimed that he was a sorcerer, and the spell had to be broken by blowing the ashes of his burnt corpse from the mouth of a cannon. The succession to the throne had now been interrupted, and a ruler had to be chosen. Vasily Chuisky, a military noble of distinguished family, a bald myopic man of little energy, secured the suffrages of Moscow and mounted the throne. But while the sluggishness of communication enabled Moscow thus to choose a sovereign for the entire country, it left the provinces in such a state of confusion and unsettlement that any rebel could find support there. Another Dmitri arose and was accepted. People recollected that the real Dmitri had, like a true Russian, worn a beard, while Otropiev had had none. The new claimant had a beard. A regiment of nobles in one province, an army of disaffected peasants and brigands in another, raised the standard of the new adventurer and united their forces within sight of Moscow. There the nobles quarrelled with and deserted their baser comrades, and the new claimant ended on a gallows. But the name Dmitri was now a phrase under which any kind of rebellion might find shelter. A number of men who claimed that they were sons or grandsons of Ivan the Terrible appeared, and the known morals of that monarch did not make the number implausible. A third false Dmitri, a very poor type of adventurer, was fabricated, and before long the rebels again set up within sight of Moscow the court of the real monarch. The new impostor went so far as to claim that he was not merely the prince, but the first false Dmitri also, having escaped assassination and he sent tender messages to his wife, Marina, who had married Otropiev and her father. In later years they maintained that the impostor had, after killing their servants, torn them from their home and brought them to Moscow, but such trickery was common. Marina's father, still thirsting for a crown for his daughter and a share of its magnificence for himself, brought his daughter to Moscow, and bade her open her arms to her recovered husband. I would die first, she said, after seeing the worthless adventurer. But the father persisted, and soon the genuine Tsar and Tsarina held court outside Moscow, while Chuisky and his friends nervously kept the city. The situation was complicated by the insidious behavior of the King of Poland, King Sigismund continued with a hypocritical pretense of justice to support the claimant, while he negotiated a surer way of getting the crown. He claimed the Russian throne for his own son Ladislas, and sent an army against Moscow. The terrified boyars now compelled the useless Chuisky to resign and formed a council, including one of the Romanovs, Ivan Nikitich, to direct the affairs of the distracted country. This small group of boyars accepted Ladislas, 
but it became clear that sigismund and his jesuits put forward ladislas only as a pretext to seize the throne and a terrible agitation seized the people their historic faith was in danger the shadow of the pope fell upon their very walls the small polish army had to be conducted into the city during the night the people awoke to find popery in their midst and soldiers and the nobles who supported poland including the romanovs had to shelter in the kreml the impostor was at length driven away from moscow and in december the news came that he had been slain by the tatars but this removal of one element of strife now only embittered the people further against the Poles. King Sigismund was taking Russian towns in the east. The Swedes were busy in the north. Russia had returned to as grave and costly a confusion as it had ever witnessed, and the long-suffering peasants looked up with dull eyes from their plough to hear the latest news of their masters or fled before the unrestrained bands of brigands in moscow itself a row between the people and the polish soldiers led to days of murder and burning of houses and the skirmish was turned into regular warfare by the arrival of an army of cossacks the poles and a number of moscow nobles including the wife and son of archbishop Filaret, who had gone to plead with the polish king and been held prisoner by him were closely besieged in the kreml it was a butcher of nizhny novgorod who raised at length a national standard and rallied the best elements of the country his forceful and sincere personality bound together his townsmen in a league of effort and sacrifice and in the late summer of sixteen twelve a large and solemn army headed by the priests and monks and sacred pictures came within sight of the golden domes of the metropolis the townsfolk eagerly joined them and the few hundred poles who remained in the kreml were summoned to surrender worn with famine though they had begun to eat the flesh of their slain comrades and had made soup of the old parchments in the archives the brave troops at first stubbornly refused to yield without an order from their king they surrendered on october twenty sixth and a company of living ghosts emerged from the sacred enclosure amongst them was ivan nikitich of the romanov family and filaret's wife marfa and with marfa his large eyes wondering at the scenes of horror was her son michel who was destined to be the first romanov ruler a provisional government was formed and a summons to a great popular assembly was sent over the country a number of loosely chosen representatives except of the peasants who no longer counted came to moscow and the task of choosing a monarch was confronted the nobles were generally in favor of ladislas of poland but the bitter anti-roman and anti-polish feeling restrained these they must have a russian monarch and men naturally asked if they had not still amongst them some man of royal blood from Filaret, whose embassy had won him some prestige, but whose clerical condition debarred him from the throne, attention was soon drawn to his son. 
the mother, Marfa, had left Moscow after issuing from the Kreml, and had gone to a country estate at Kastroma. There were, however, other Romanovs in the assembly, and Filaret himself, who, however, is said to have urged the election of a boyar, maintained contact with it from his exile. Most zealous for the boy, for Mikhail was only seventeen years old, was a crafty old fox who had married a niece of Filaret, and might reasonably expect some reward. To the nobles he pointed out that the youth and feebleness of Mikhail would leave them a larger power. To the clergy he observed that to have the father of the Tsar, a metropolitan of their church, held out a large prospect of power for them. In short, the nobles were induced to realize that blood was the thing that mattered, while the clergy and monks were guided by supernatural visions in which the boy appeared as God's chosen one. Mikhail was elected on February 21st. Three weeks later, a solemn procession approached the monastery at Kastroma, in which Marfa guarded her precious son. She wept at the prospect of Mikhail assuming so dangerous a dignity. Tears are second only to blood in the chronicles of Moscow, and for several days maintained a most virtuous resistance. And on May 2nd, Marfa and Mikhail entered the Kreml once more, the chosen rulers of Russia. There can be little doubt that the hesitation of the nobles, who really had no prominent candidate before their eyes, was chiefly overborne in favor of the Romanovs by a consideration of the youth of Mikhail. Marfa was not one of the strong women who abound in the Russian chronicles. We shall soon see her return to the convent from which the national agitation had drawn her. Filaret was a prisoner in the hands of the Poles, and none could surmise when he would return. We see in the election little of the national spirit which had cleared Moscow, yet the country groaned for the creative genius of a statesman and the virility of a strong soldier. The ravages of war had terribly enfeebled it. Its industrial life was in decay. Its hereditary enemies threatened it on every front. Mikhail was a feeble youth, whose eyes still looked dully upon the strange scenes he had witnessed. He passed at once into the hands of his mother and her relatives, the Saltikovs, and the court hummed once more with petty intrigue for money and offices. Marfa appropriated the hereditary treasure of the Tsarina, and, knowing something of the history of Russia, formed about her a body of spies and supporters. The older nobles resisted the upstarts, and fierce quarrels for precedence and appointments occurred, even in the presence of the Tsar. At times the knot was laid upon two offensive shoulders, but several years passed in these selfish reclamations. There were, however, urgent affairs to be settled, and by raising the taxation to one-fourth of the individual's income, sufficient money was gathered, and escaped the fingers of the nobles to raise an army. So great had been the disorder of the previous twenty years that Moscow itself had lost a third of its population, and the impoverished merchants writhed under the tax. But the Cossacks were threatening— 
the romantic marina who will be remembered as the wife of the first and companion of the second false dimitri had given birth to a son and she transferred her versatile affection to the cossack leader zarutsky and relied upon him to secure the crown for her little ivan Zarutsky swept triumphantly from town to town, while other brigands emptied villages, and the Swedes and Poles pursued their accustomed inroads. The new army scattered the Cossacks, impaled their leader, and hanged the little Ivan, an infant of three years, in order effectually to settle the brood of pretenders narina ended her curious career in prison and southern russia was restored to comparative calm the councillors of marfa now turned toward the swedes and poles a direct struggle with such adversaries was impossible and russian envoys made the round of europe seeking either money and men to meet them or mediation to disarm them at the western courts the muscovites did not convey a favorable impression of their country their gross manners and dirty ways affronted even the english and dutch of the early seventeenth century nor were the silver articles of the table or the maids on the streets quite safe from their ready hands but England and Holland had, besides the moderate advantage of hating Rome, a keen desire to trade with Russia and the East, and they endeavored to secure peace. Poland scornfully refused to treat with the son of a pope, who had usurped the throne of their Ladislas. In 1617, however, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden was bought off by a large indemnity and a few towns, and Russia was able to oppose a stronger defense to Poland. King Sigismund now offered a truce, and at a conference it was arranged that he should renounce the claim to the Russian crown, but keep Smolensk and other cities. The peace was followed by an exchange of prisoners, and in the summer of 1619 the Archbishop Filaret hastened to secure the power which awaited him. It happened that the patriarchal throne of Moscow was vacant, and Filaret occupied it. That he was a priest malgré lui, and enjoyed the more luxurious and comforting tastes of a profane layman, did not much matter in that world. Far more religious prelates than Filaret drank heavily and habitually. The patriarchate was the highest power he could nominally and legally hold, and he was not wanting either in energy or ambition. For a patriarch, however, to have a wife about the court was scarcely seemly, and he persuaded Marfa to return to her convent. He felt also that it was expedient to remove some of her friends, and in order to do this with a show of justice, he reopened a very curious case that had been settled in his absence. In the year 1616, Michel had decided to wed a young woman of obscure family named Maria Ivanovna Khlopov. Her name was, in accordance with custom, changed to Anastasia. Her espousals were celebrated. The day of the sacred ceremony, which would make her Tsarina, was within her delighted view. 
then the luckless maria fell ill which no bride of a czar must dare to do the doctors examined her and pronounced her unfit to serve the delight of the czar and the unhappy maiden and her relatives were suddenly dispatched to siberia Philarete, who knew with what anxiety the existing favorites at a Russian court regarded the coming of a crowd of relatives with a czar's bride, and how frequently the chosen maid met with accidents before the wedding day, looked into the affair when he returned. Her confessor admitted that she was innocent. It now transpired that a certain indiscretion in eating fruit was the full extent of her fault and she was recalled from Siberia and permitted to settle with a small pension at Nizhny Novgorod. It appeared that Philarete had hope of securing a more distinguished Tsarina. During the next few years he approached the courts of Denmark and Sweden, but without success. The king of Denmark bluntly remarked that the heir of Moscow was not good for the chosen brides of Tsars so Philarete returned to the affair of Maria Klopov, and was now convinced that the jealous Saltikovs, Marfa's people, had fabricated the charge. He fell upon them with great severity, and drove several into exile. Marfa, however, succeeded in saving the remainder of the family, and also in preventing the return to court of Maria. To cut the story short, yet fitly introduce the next generation of palace squabblers, we may say that in 1624 Mikhail married Princess Maria Dolgoruki, and as she died soon afterwards, he married a woman of undistinguished family, Eudoxia Sreknyev. The new Tsarina provided a son, Alexis, and the precious dynasty of the Romanovs was saved from a premature extinction. Philarete had ability, and we need not quarrel with the way in which he took the power from the hands of his feeble and incompetent son. That he was a Wolsey, or a Richelieu, as some historians conceive him, is far too flattering an exaggeration. The Cossacks, the Poles, and the Swedes were disarmed while he was still absent and when the poles renewed the war in sixteen thirty two philarete's army was badly beaten and he could think of nothing better than to have its generals executed he had friendly relations with france and england because both wanted to enter through russia into a profitable commerce with persia which was refused the turks of course barred the mediterranean route to the east the sultan offered Philarete an alliance against the Poles, but he was at that time unprepared for a big war. On the whole, it was a balance of interests rather than statesmanship which gave Russia some years of peace. Internally, Philarete did more active service. The question had already arisen whether Russia should be Europeanized. The colony of foreign merchants, which now grew just outside the walls of Moscow, exhibited a higher culture. The western armies were constantly superior to the Russian in equipment. The envoys to France, England, and Holland spoke of refinements which made the luxury of Moscow seem tawdry. 
on the other hand were the inevitable croakers who protested that russian trade russian religion or even the russian state would not survive an invasion of western ideas Philaret boldly adopted the progressive view and summoned foreign teachers to Moscow. Astronomers brought their marvelous instruments to astonish or scare the populace. Mathematicians and literary men opened schools in the metropolis. Against one Western discovery, tobacco, the Russians remained obdurate while the man who was caught surreptitiously taking snuff, as the Westerners did, had his nose cut off. The religious controversy also contributed to the sharpening of the wits of the nation. The Jesuits still lingered heroically on the fringe of the empire, and sought to bring it under the rule of the papacy. Even a new pretender was tried— a son of Marina, who had escaped murder, they said, but the man, a commonplace peasant, was not chosen with their usual skill, and little harm was done. In the Russian provinces, which were subject to Poland, however, they worked with such effect that the church was rent by a great schism. Some of the Russian prelates were for union with Rome— the struggle had an echo in Russia, and some education for controversial purposes was inaugurated. We must, however, not exaggerate the effect on the Russian mind of this controversy. It is estimated by Russian historians that at that time not one person in a thousand at the most could read, and even in the city circles in which the points at issue were debated, the clash of ideas must have been of the crudest conceivable nature. Philaret, who sincerely endeavored to introduce some Western culture into this dense jungle of ignorance and superstition, died in 1633. Michel continued for twelve years to sustain feebly the plans of his father, and the period may be described as one of slow recovery. An amusing episode of Michel's last year will give some idea of the condition even of the court. In 1641, Prince Valdemar of Denmark came to Russia on behalf of his father. The court decided that it would like him to wed the Princess Irene, and when Valdemar was deaf to hints and returned to Copenhagen, a deputation was sent to consult with his father. King Christian favored the proposal, but Valdemar had seen Moscow and was not attracted. When one of the envoys fervently pledged his head as a guarantee that all would be well, the young prince asked, What should I do with your head? At the beginning of 1645, however, he submitted so far to the pressure as to go to Moscow, and a quaint struggle followed. For five months the prince fought against the marriage. In vain were the person and virtues of Irene impressed upon him. He was assured that she never got drunk as other Russian ladies did, and her personal attractions, which seemed to have been feeble, were eloquently exaggerated. Valdemar found the pretext that his evangelical faith was in grave danger if he joined the Russian court and he proposed to return to Denmark. He was virtually a prisoner in the Kreml, 
and on one occasion he created a scandal by drawing the sword and threatening to cut his way out. In July, Mikael died, and his successor allowed the Danish prince to return home. End of section 4